good morning, Renewal Church. My name is Colton White. I'm the associate pastor here at Renewal Church. I'm so glad that you've joined us on this Sunday morning uh, in the middle of a global pandemic, uh, in the middle of the chaos of everything that's going on. I'm really excited to bring the word to you. Uh, just pray for our pastor, Matthew, um, as he is leading and preaching in our sending church this morning, uh, which is why you have me, and I'm really excited about that. And so he's preaching somewhere else today, and so I'm stepping in to lead us this morning. And it's interesting, we just finished our Habakkuk series, and I've been praying and thinking about where do I want to go? <laughs> like, God, what do you want me to say to the people of Renewal? Um, and it made me think of a story, something that happened to me in college. Uh, I remember I had a buddy that invited me to go to an Astros game with him. I'm a huge Astros fan. I was 19 at the time, and so I was super excited to go to this game. However, it was in Houston, and I'm from, like, small-town Texas, a little bitty town called Quero. So I was terrified to drive into Houston. He wanted me to meet him at his house in Houston, and then he would drive us to the game, to Minute Maid Park. And I was terrified. I, like, had never driven in the city before. The most I'd ever been on is, like, a three-lane interstate. And so I drive into Houston, and I'm, like, going the speed limit, making sure that I don't cut anybody off because those Houstonites are crazy. And so I was going the speed limit, taking my time, and I was relieved that I got to his house safely. And so I thought, yeah, okay, he's just going to drive us to the ballpark now. Like, he's done this a million times. It'll be easy peasy. Well, have you ever gotten into the car with someone, and then within a minute, you realize, today's the day I die. Like, I'm going to die today. They are such a bad driver, and don't look at your spouse when I say that. But they are such a bad driver that there's no way I'm making it, make it out of this alive. Well, that was that moment. As he's zipping through six-lane uh, interstates and he's cutting people off and he's having a conversation with me as, uh, as we're driving and I'm like holding on to the little handlebar up here and he's just looking at me. I'm like, uh-huh, uh-huh, look at the road. And then more than that, he missed the turn to go into the stadium. And so there's a big sign that says Minute Maid Park, exit now. And he just drove past it. And I'm like, bro, what are you doing? Like, like don't you live in this city? Where, where are you going, right? What, do you, what are you doing? And I was thinking about that story. And I was thinking about the circumstances we're in now. Because in that moment, I can remember, you know, it's a funny story, haha, but I can remember going like, do I really know this guy? Like, he, he made me lose a little bit of confidence in him. And I was thinking about where we are now and the direction that God is taking us and looking around and going, God, do you know where you're going? Like, do you really know what, like, what's the plan? Where are we headed? Did you mean to turn left back there? Like, what's happening? Because it's one thing to lose confidence in your friend because they're a crazy driver, but it's a whole other thing to lose confidence in your God because when you look around, you, you don't know what's happening. And my fear, as I've, I've been praying about this and thinking about my own heart, is that I can look around at what's happening and just not have any confidence in our God. And there's two layers to this as I've been thinking about it. And the first one is just the reality that we're in the midst of a global pandemic. Um, with so many sick and, and dying, and people are either frustrated at the government or they're frustrated just because of the virus or they're 
anxious and people are out of kids are out of school and everyone's at home and we can't meet as a faith family and we don't know when we're going to meet or how that's going to work like there's so much we don't know just because of a global pandemic but then there's also this other layer this second layer where the reality that life was hard before the pandemic <laughs> like before everything shut down life was already hard so many of you are trying to fight for your marriages and learn how to love your spouse or you want your kids to know the Lord and you want to discipline them and you want to educate them. And now you're homeschooling and you're just trying to make it through the day. <laughs> or you, you've struggled with a sin before and you didn't like being at home already. You like to go into your home group or to your faith family and hang out with brothers and sisters in Christ. And now you, you can't do that. And there's this whole other second layer where it's like life is already hard. And then you throw this pandemic on top of it. It's easy to look around and go, God, what is happening? <laughs> like, where are we going? And it's easy to lose confidence in a time like this. Like, it, when I think about Renewal Church, it's hard sometimes because the first week in March, Matthew and I had just gotten back from South Asia. We were excited about the future, excited about where God was taking us. And about the global mission of God and, and what our church was about to tap into. And I had met with a home group leader about and talked with them about what it means, how to multiply their home group. And I was meeting with a couple of visitors who were excited about renewal and what God was doing in their life, that he was renewing them. And then all of a sudden, God changed the direction on us. He completely changed the direction. And I think... In these times, it's interesting that he's allowing us to live in complicated circumstances. And I use that word complicated on purpose. That it's unique. It's different. Like the way I would explain it to people is things are complicated. <laughs> like why aren't we meeting right now? Well, it's, it's complicated. Why are these things happening? Well, it's complicated. And, and I don't know you, but I just kind of feel like God's kind of thrown us into the back seat of the car, shut the door, and just started driving. And then we got up and looked out the window and we're like, uh, where are we? <laughs> What's happening here? But here's the deal. We would be fools to lose confidence in our God. We would be absolute fools. So I want to spend some time in his word so that we can be reminded just how good and gracious our God is because he's not lost and he hasn't changed directions. He hasn't changed his mind. He hasn't changed his mind about his purpose. He hasn't changed his mind about his affections towards us. He is not lost. He has not lost control. He is continuing a story that has been told from the beginning of everything. It's a story of power. It's a story of authority. It's a story of grace that he's invited us into. So what I want to do today is answer the question, how does God work in the midst of the complicated? When things, and I wouldn't even call it like, like bad, I, I, I still feel loved by God, but it's complicated. It's hard. And so how does God work in the midst of that, in the midst of, of the complicated, because what I've been tempted to do in my own soul is just kind of bank on the end of the story, because I, I'm confident, and I know that at the end of the day, 
God will have victory. Like, I'm confident that we'll be able to look back and say, okay, here's what God did. Here's how he worked through that. And here's how he did that. And here's how we can praise him because he did this. Like, I'm confident that that's going to happen. So I'm tempted to just kind of live in that moment and like wait to praise him then. But I think that God's asking much more of us to where I want to focus us in and say, okay, what does it look like to praise him in the complicated? Because as we'll see here, it's in the wilderness that he shapes us. It's in the complicated that he really meets us. We praise him later because of what he does now. And so I want to lead us through a text, and really a couple texts, and show us what it means to praise him in the complicated and what it means to trust him because of what he does in the midst of it. So I want to start in Exodus chapter 13 and 14. And so this is the moment in Exodus between um, the Israelites being declared free and before them actually parting the Red Sea. So it's, so it's in that little like movie moment, right? This is the moment that movies are made about, um, one of the dynamic moments in our Bible. And God's people have been through a lot of complicated circumstances already. They've been slaves. Um, God raised Moses up. Moses declares the Israelites' freedom. Pharaoh says no, and God begins to send plague after plague and plague. And all this is set under the backdrop of God has promised them a promised land, a place that is full of milk and honey, a place that is promised prosperity and peace with God. And so they know that's out there, and they know that's the plan for them, but they're not there yet. And if you read it, this celebratory text about God parting the Red Sea, it's actually pretty complicated. And God makes it that way, which is interesting. And so we're going to be starting in Exodus 13, starting in verse 17. Let me read that for us. It says, When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the Philistines, although that was near. So the assumption here for the Israelites, if you're an Israelite and you're free, the assumption is that, okay, now we are going to go to the promised land. And if you look at a map, you'll see that the promised land is actually just north of Egypt. It's actually pretty near. The text says, for it was near. This is also known as the way of the Philistines. So when it says the way of the Philistines, he's talking about going north towards the promised land. So to get to the promised land, they have to go north through the Philistines. And everything to the south of that was desert. It was the wilderness. And so the text says God did not lead them north, which was their assumption, right? even though it was near. And then if you jump to verse 18, it says, But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness towards the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. So God sends them south, and they're equipped for battle. They assume they're going north to fight the Philistines because this is the more direct route to the promised land. So think about this. God sends them the wrong way. <laughs> he sends them the long way. Not the short way, but the long way. They're dressed for battle, ready to go north. And they're like, if you're in Israel, you're like, why, why are we going south? We need to go north. If you jump to chapter 14, verse 1, God makes it even more complicated. In Exodus 14, 1, it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel, 
to turn back and encamp in front of Pi Hiroth, between Migdol and the sea, in front of Baal Safan, you shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they, they are wandering in the land, the wilderness has shut them in. So it's happening. The Israelites are free. They have a promised land to live in. They know that land is north. They get dressed up for battle because they assume that's what's going to happen. And God sends them south to the wilderness. And then he says, actually, turn around, okay, and go back and go towards the sea. If you look at a map, you actually see that he made them do a circle, right? (laughs) He made them do a circle. And so it looks like to Pharaoh that they're lost in their trap between the wilderness and the sea, that they don't know what they're doing. If you take a step back from that, you have to ask the question, like, God, do you know what you're doing? <laughs> like, what is happening here? You, you're at minimum questioning Moses' leadership, right? Like, like, bro, we need to go that way. Like, you ever been on a camping trip or you're hiking and you had a destination in mind, and then all of a sudden you're like, um, I think that's the third time we've seen that tree. <laughs> you're at minimum questioning the guide's ability to lead, right? And I'm sure if you're an Israelite, that's what they're doing. He's like, I think we're lost. What's the plan? And what's the plan with us? With over a million sick thousands dead. You're frustrated and anxious about the government or the pandemic itself or your kid's future, the future of our church. The stock market has crashed. What are we going to do? And like the, the logistics of when we meet, how are we going to take the Lord's Supper again together? And we go, for me at least, God, what is going on? How does God work in the midst of that? What I want to show you in this text is three ways that God showed up for them in the midst of the complicated. How God worked in the midst of it and what his plan was with them. And the first thing that he thing that he does with the Israelites in this text, in these chapters, is he forges them, or he has a plan to forge them into something new. 13, 17 again, let me read that. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, so north, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. That God knows if they go north, if they go north, the place where they think lies freedom actually leads to destruction. Right? The Israelites were, were slaves. The Philistines were warriors. It's not an even battle. So if they go north, they're just going to end up right back in Egypt. And God knows this. He sees the obstacle on the short path and says, no, you're going to go the long way for 40 years. <laughs> and in his mercy, he sends them into the wilderness. But here's what he does there. In the midst of the wilderness, he forges them into an army. He builds them up. And more importantly than that, he builds up their character in that place. He teaches them how to trust him. He teaches them what it means to depend on him. He makes them in that desert what they weren't 
at the Red Sea. He makes them into men and women of God. That in that place, they learn not to depend on their own abilities, but they learn to depend on God. So when they leave the desert, they're not only warriors, but they're worshipers. They not only know how to do their duty, but they know how to love the Lord. They're not perfect, but they have a better idea. So when I think about us at Renewal Church, would I rather be at North Belton Middle School right now, (laughs) singing with you, having coffee with you, talking with you, putting up the signs on the streets? Yeah, I would. I'd rather be preaching face to face so I can look at you. I would rather be there, but I believe that in this season, God is making us into something new. I don't know what that is. I don't know what that looks like, and I don't know how long it's going to be or even how painful it will get, but I know that he has taken our comfort away so that we can learn to be something new and something different. And I'm confident that at the end of the day, whatever that will look like, it's going to be better. It's going to be better than what we had. It's going to be better than what we could be without the comfort being taken away. Here's what um, we, we learn in, later in Deuteronomy. Um, Deuteronomy 8.15, it says, Who led you through that great and terrifying wilderness? I love that. This is God. Who led you through that great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water? Who brought you water out of the flinty rock? Who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know? And here's what he says. That he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. I think this text is kind of funny. Like God himself acknowledges that the wilderness was awful. Think about that. (laughs) Like it's one thing for me to turn to you and go like, man, it's hot here. Like do you remember like when we were in the wilderness and how hot it was. But it's a whole other thing for God to go, bro, do you remember the wilderness? (laughs) Like, do you remember the scorpions? It was awful. It's a whole other thing for God to say that. But here's what he does in that place and in this season. He's humbling us. He's testing us. And he's doing good for us. And he's making us into something new. The second way that God works in the midst of the complicated is that God will display his glory in the midst of it. Um, Exodus 14, 3, um, right when God turns them around and sends them into by the sea, he says, For Pharaoh will say of the people, they are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And then verse 4 says, And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. Think about what God's doing here. He leads the people of Israel to the edge of the sea, essentially instructs them to walk in circles, trapped by the sea and the wilderness. And in verse 3, Pharaoh's good with just mocking them. But in verse 4, God hardens Pharaoh's heart so much that Pharaoh mobilized his army to go after them. So God gets them lost trapped, and then he sends an army after them. (laughs) Are you serious? Why does he do that? Verse 4, I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, 
and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. One of the reasons God allows us to live in the midst of the complicated, it, is, it, is, it isn't even about you. And it isn't even about me. It's about them. And it's about him. That he will display his glory to all of the earth. That all nations would know that he is Lord. And he will use the events in my life and in your life to display that glory to others. And we as the saved people of God say, yes. We say, I'm in. Use my life to display your glory that we surrender our our, our lives at his feet. And we say, yes, I'm in. Why do we do that? Why would we do that? Why would we submit ourselves and surrender ourselves like that? Because every person on the planet was created for the glory of God. And what's the best thing in existence? God. (laughs) God is. He is the fountain of all good. He is the fountain of all love, of all hope, of all joy. Every good thing that we enjoy was his idea. So what's the best gift that God could give you? Himself. It's not a thing or a way of life or job or status or money or good merit. The best thing he can give you is himself that you would know him, that I would know him. So the best gift I could give you is to point you to him. So if God wants to detour our plans so that they would know him, we as the people of God say yes. We completely surrender to that so that the story of his glory would be known to people all around our town, our city, our county, and the world. Consider Rahab. I, I love the story. When the Israelites show up, show up in the promised land, they meet Rahab as they're kind of scouting her village. And then in Joshua 2.10, um, she says, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. And then she says, for we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt. She's like, I know about you. I know this is your land. I know what God did at the Red Sea. I've heard about it. The glory of God among the nations. This is our story that we would surrender our lives and say, no matter how complicated it gets, I will say, yes, use my life to display your glory so that people will know who he is by what he does with our lives and how we respond in the midst of it. That we would respond in worship and that we would not respond in frustration. We wouldn't be a complaining people. We wouldn't be a bitter people. And we wouldn't be a fearful people. That we would be people known and marked by love, patience, generosity, and conviction without fear. In the middle of the complicated, we reflect and display His glory. The third way that God works in the midst of the complicated is He will grow your faith. He will. He will grow your faith and create in you a heart that worships Him. 
it's interesting when the Israelites see the Egyptians coming towards them, they turn on Moses and they turn on God. Exodus 14.10 says, When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord and they said to Moses, listen to this question. Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? They asked the question, is it because there is no place to bury us in Egypt that you've sent us out here? And it goes on and he's like, what have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. They've lost all hope. They've lost all hope. And when they think about the future and they think about their God, they don't know what to do. They've lost all confidence. And I know that there's some of you in that place. Or maybe you're flirting with it. You're there a little bit. You feel yourself trying to drift there. You've lost sight of who God is. You, you've, you've lost communion with him. But I want you to encourage with you with this. What does he do with them? Does he punish them for feeling that way? Does he forsake them? What does he do? <laughs> he literally parts the sea so they can walk through it. He is committed to you. He is for you. And he is worth putting your trust in him in the middle of the complicated. And he will grow your faith. You will see him work. When they cross the Red Sea, what's the first thing they do? What's the first thing they do? And I have confidence that we'll be here one day. Exodus 15.1, Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. I have confidence that one day we'll be able to look back and say he triumphed gloriously. That he triumphed over a pandemic, over an economic collapse. No one knows what that will be, but he has proven over and over again that he is faithful. And this theme of how God works, how he forges us, how he grows our faith, how he displays his glory, this theme is found throughout all of our Bible, throughout all of scripture, right? You can see a thread in almost every story in the Bible of God working in the midst of the complicated and displaying his glory in the midst of it. Think about the story of David. David is anointed as king as a teenager, right? So he goes and becomes a leader in the military. He marries the king's daughter, right? So he's on this trajectory in life to be king, to live in the palace, to be in charge of everything. But then what happens? God runs him off, essentially, into the wilderness for 10 years as Saul chases him. And what does God do in the midst of the wilderness? He meets him there. And it's in that place that David is forged into something new, that it's in that place that God makes him a man after God's own heart. Are you thinking about the story in Joshua 5 and 6? It's the first major battle in the promised land. 
in the city of Jericho. There's massive walls all around it. Joshua's leading them. They've been training for 40 years. How are they going to take the city? As they look at the walls, how are they going to get through those walls? Well, if you're a military leader, you can think, okay, there's five different ways. They can go under the wall. They can go over the wall. They can break through the wall. Or they can like do a Trojan horse kind of thing and get inside the wall. Or they can starve the people out. And God comes to him. I love this. God comes to him and he says, okay, here's the battle plan. And if you're Josh, you're like, all right, we're going over, under, through. What do we do? He says, get your music, guys. <laughs> get your music, guys, and walk around the city for seven days. And then, and then on the seventh day, I want you to play your trumpets. <laughs> if you're Joshua, you're like, uh, what, what'd you say? What's the plan? We've been training for 40 years. What do you mean walk around the city? Oh, and then he says, I want you to shout. <laughs> what? That's your plan? He introduces complicated into an already hard situation. And if you're those soldiers, you're like, what? He's like, yeah, yeah, we're giving this one to the trumpets. <laughs> I don't think that's going to work. Why? Why does he do it? The display of his glory among the nations. Who do you think got that glory? The soldiers? Joshua? The trumpet guys? No, no, no. They played a note and walked around the city. <laughs> they didn't do anything. Who do you think got that glory? God did. A God who controls every single thing on the planet, who wins battles through music. I love the story of Jairus and his little girl and the bleeding woman in Mark 5. Jairus is a religious ruler, and he's desperate, and he runs up to Jesus, and he says, my little girl is sick at the point of death. He says, can you help? And Jesus agrees. He, he begins to follow Jairus. There's this massive entourage around them. They're, they all want to see this miracle. Jesus is in the, his popular point in ministry, so everyone wants to see him heal this little girl. So be in that moment, like the anticipation of the crowd, the anxiety of Jairus as a father, the suffering of this little girl. And so he's like, for Jairus, this is the guy we've heard stories about. This is the guy who can heal my daughter. And so they start walking, and then what happens? A woman in the crown touches him. This woman had a chronic disease for 12 years. Um, she was ostracized and an outcast in society. And she literally just wants to touch him so that she can be healed. Mark 5.30, it says, Jesus perceiving in him, I love this, Jesus perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? <laughs> so the crowd's pressing in on Jesus. So this woman touches him. She's healed. And we, realize, and we read that Jesus realized that power had gone out of him. It's the first time we see the Greek word dunamis. Um, it's the word for power from which we get the word dynamite. So Jesus felt the dynamite come out of him. And he has a sensation and he knows that something's happened. So he stops the entourage, the emergency procession, turns to the crowd and says, Who touched me? Be Jairus in this moment. You're hurrying because you got to get to your little girl. 
Jesus, the, the, the healer's coming, the guy you've heard stories about, and all of a sudden he stops and starts having a conversation with the crowd. How are you feeling in that moment? I would call it complicated. That is a complicated situation. And if you think about it, like this, the bleeding woman, like her problem was bad, but it wasn't immediate. Like this could have happened two hours later and she still could have been healed. Jairus' daughter problem was immediate. And he wants to hurry Jesus. He's like, hurry, hurry. This little girl needs help from you now. But here's the deal. Jesus will not be hurried. Our God will not be hurried. He works on his own timing. The woman who touched him came out of the crowd and approached him. And he said this to her in verse 34 in Mark 5. He says, and he said to her daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Think about this. No one wanted this moment. The bleeding woman didn't want the moment. I'm sure the disciples didn't want this moment. The crowd didn't want this moment. They wanted to see him heal the little girl, the, the popular religious ruler. Jairus for sure didn't want this moment. No one wanted this moment, but Jesus did. Jesus wanted this moment. She just wanted to be healed, to touch and run. But what she got was much better. She got a face-to-face conversation with God. Meanwhile, what Jairus feared actually came true. His daughter is dead. Verse 35, while he was speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Don't trouble the teacher any further. But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. But precisely because of the delay, both Jairus, think about this, Jairus and the woman get far more than what they asked for. We see the same story in Exodus, in David, in the Battle of Jericho, and all throughout our Bible that God will take the complicated and in the midst of it, make us into something new. He will refine our faith. He will display His glory. He will create in us a heart that truly worships Him. So we go to the little girl and it says, taking her by the hand, He said, Talitha Kumai, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking. And it says they were overcome with amazement. Of course they were. Of course. Jairus came to Jesus to cure a fever, not for a resurrection. And when Listen, when complicated circumstances force you to trust Him, and they force you to trust Him, you get from God far more than you expected you'd get. And more than that, on the other side, when you actually trust Him, you also end up giving to Him far more than you thought you could. That's what happens in the complicated Jairus came thinking, look, I've just got to get Jesus to my house. My daughter is sick. He can heal her. He, he was thinking that he would just have to trust Jesus enough to get him there. But Jesus actually demanded far more from Jairus. Think about that. Jairus came with one expectation, but Jesus forced him into a whole new circumstance. And he asked much more of Jairus' faith in that moment. And I believe he's doing the same with us. He is asking much more than we think we can give. 
And he's going to do much more than he, we think he can do in the middle of the complicated, in the middle of the hard circumstances that we, we look around and we go, God, where are you going? And I think what we're going to see is we're going to see him do a lot more than what we think he can. Because what we tend to do in our humanity is we make rational solutions based on what we think God can do. Well, okay, if we do this math and we look at the data and if we, okay, they're like this or their politics are like this and we look at the world and we look at, okay, as Renewal Church, here's what we can do. We got this money. We, we make solutions. We, we, we set up an expectation. But what we see time and time again in Scripture is that God actually does much more And so I wonder when we pray, when you pray at home, do you pray based on what you think we can accomplish or or what we think we can do? Or do you pray based on who we know him to be? (laughs) That we would expect much more because he's going to do much more and that we would, in the testing and refinement of our faith, attempt to give much more, to believe much more. He's not asking us to change the world. We're inadequate to do that. But he's not. But he is asking us to trust him, to have faith that actually looks at his promises, who we know him to be, and say, yes, I believe you. Because he will see us through He has total authority and love and power. In a minute, we're going to sing um, No Longer Slaves. And in the bridge, it says, You split the sea so I could walk right through it. My fears are drowned in perfect love. You rescued me, and I will stand and sing. I am a child of God. And when we sing this song, my prayer is that we would remember God's promises in the midst of the complicated, like, like, consider, he split the sea so I could walk right through it. Remember what they said right before that. God, did you bring us out here to die? <laughs> and I can imagine there's some of you right now, you're looking around, God, did you do all this to punish us? What's happening here? But in the midst of that, remember also that he's for you. He is the best thing that he could offer you himself. He he is the best thing for you. And he is offering you himself. That you would run to his arms and be satisfied as with rich and fat food. That's what Psalm 63 says. And so the one last thing I want to mention is, like I said earlier, we're, we're tempted to go to the end of the story And like, okay, I'm going to cruise for now, but later down the road, I know that God will work it all out. We'll meet again. And and it's then that I'll really be able to see how God worked and what God did and how God changed people. And I can praise him then when I get to the other side of the sea. But what I want to encourage you is today and this week, as we're praying about where to go as renewal, where to meet and all of that logistics, that you would stop. And in the midst of the most complicated time in the history of our church, we would praise him. (laughs) We would unashamedly be proud of our God. 
that we would stand in the middle of the complicated and go, I know, <laughs> it's a mess, but he's so good. And he's been so good to us that we would stand in confidence in the midst of the complicated and praise him.